Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. The California Division of Occupational Safety and Health has sent a memo to its standards board asking it to delay a vote on proposed changes to pandemic-related workplace guidelines. The board is meeting later this morning and had been scheduled to review its latest proposal, which included easing rules on wearing masks indoors and physical distancing. But in the letter, the deputy chief of Cal OSHA says that with the recent change in guidance from the CDC regarding mask wearing for people who are fully vaccinated and California's response, the agency would prefer to wait to give it time to present new proposed changes to workplace rules at a future meeting. The ultimate goal is to align with the state's scheduled reopening date of June 15th. More than 67 percent of Californians who are 18 and older have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. That's according to the latest data from the CDC. That puts California near the top when it comes to best-performing states. Vaccination efforts continue to be led by the Bay Area and Southern California, as most counties in both of those regions have administered at least one dose to well over half of their residents. But other parts of the state, like rural areas in Northern California, are lagging well behind. In some counties, far less than 50 percent of residents are even partially vaccinated. Despite many successes when it comes to vaccinating the public in L.A. County, there are still concerns about outreach. Less than half of eligible people there are fully vaccinated. KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports. Fewer people are getting infected with COVID-19 in California, and highly potent free vaccines are widely available. But demand for those shots has dropped. Mass vaccination sites in Ventura, Orange, and Los Angeles counties are in the process of closing as fewer people show up. Andrew Neumer is an epidemiologist at UC Irvine. He says the vaccinations are a race against time. This lenient period we're in right now is a function of the fact that we're coming off of the winter wave and the fact that COVID is already becoming a seasonal phenomenon. It's not the end of the pandemic. Neumar expects more COVID-19 cases in colder months when respiratory viruses usually tick up. I do expect to see more cases in the fall and, and in the winter. So let's get vaccinated now and make that you know wave as small as possible. Health officials hope to see a bump in fully vaccinated residents in the next couple of weeks. Many people weren't eligible until mid-April. Those people are now just getting a second dose. And Pfizer's vaccine is now available for kids 12 and up. California will lift its indoor mask order for vaccinated people on June 15th. Neumer says we should enjoy the freedom, though it may not be permanent. I would say put the masks 
in a drawer, not in the trash. For the California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. As so many school districts around the state have at least begun the process of reopening, one in the southeast L.A. suburb of Pico Rivera is not. The population in the El Rancho Unified School District is 97 percent Latino, and families there were hit hard by the pandemic. Earlier, I spoke with L.A. Times education reporter Melissa Gomez. Over the past year during the pandemic, they've been really just devastated by the impacts of what the pandemic has brought on. When we talk about the school district, it's really hard to talk about it without talking about PICO. Um, The two are just very intertwined. The school district is the largest employer in Pico Rivera, which is just a primarily a Latino working class community. And so these are folks who are often essential workers as well. And so in talking to the superintendent, you know, who has had that bird eye view of everything that has been going on in the past year, she's heard just so many stories. Frances Esparza has heard so many stories of, you know, parents who were seeking an excused absence so that their child could attend a funeral after a COVID death Mm -hmm. or, you know, teachers kind of forwarding emails to her saying that their students had to miss a class because a family member was in the hospital. You know, she heard a story of a high school student who had lost a father and a grandmother within days of each other. There's a really powerful quote in here. She says, this is Superintendent Frances Esparza saying, we can't just pick up where we left off. Why is it so difficult for this district to go back? I mean, why is there some reluctance there? Can you help us understand that? Yeah. So they put in safety measures, safety protocols, you know, to make sure that when students come back, they have the social distance set up, they have plexiglass, you know, they have high-grade air filters or classrooms, but it just, it felt like it was too much. You know, a parent survey found that parents were pretty pretty split in terms of returning. But for the most part, it seemed that even the school board agreed that it, it felt too rushed to have students come back after mm-hmm. a year when they were still dealing with a lot of grief. And a lot of that grief came after Thanksgiving. And so a lot of students were still kind of dealing with, with losses or having family members um, having been hospitalized for COVID. Yeah. Yeah, it's still fresh, right? Mm-hmm. What are they going to do? What is next for this district? Are they just going to wait out the rest of, I mean, we are basically at the end of the school year now. So what's the plan now? So the plan now for a rancho is to just kind of take a breath and wait for summer. Summer is kind of where the superintendent is looking to reopen and have students come back to campus. Um, that's when families are going to have that option to send their students to school. And it'll also give the school district some time to train some school aides and teachers and, and getting some training on um, identifying signs of trauma or mental health issues in students. And that's kind of something that the superintendent has been passionate about is, you know, how do we kind of track the well-being of our students when they come back? That was Melissa Gomez, education reporter for the L.A. Times. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing... 
and I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. State lawmakers and county health officials are upset that Governor Gavin Newsom's proposed budget does not include enough money, in their view, to rebuild the state's ailing public health system. The coalition says $200 million is needed to be ready for the next crisis. KQED's health correspondent April Demboski reports. Even before the pandemic, local public health departments were stretched. Funding was cut during the recession in 2008 and was never fully restored. State Senator Richard Pan says when COVID hit, there weren't enough laboratories, supplies, or staff to tackle it. We didn't have the IT infrastructure so that you had doctors faxing test results to local health departments. Now with existing resources diverted to COVID, several counties can't keep up with tuberculosis, valley fever, and syphilis. Local health officers also say they don't have the resources to address racial health inequities. For the California Report, I'm April Domboski. One of the big headlines out of the updated state budget is that California is flush with cash. How flush? Well, Governor Gavin Newsom says there's a cash surplus of some $76 billion. That's larger than the entire budget of all but three states. But nonpartisan number crunchers in Sacramento, known as the Legislative Analyst's Office, say that the way they see it, the surplus is half that much. 38 billion, not 76. So what gives? We asked KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer to help explain the discrepancy. First, just a little bit of context. You know, each year the governor releases his proposed budget, one in January and then one in May, and the LAO reviews it, they critique it, they make recommendations to the legislature in terms of spending priorities. That happens every year, and that's what happened this past week. And there's always money in the budget that's committed by law. A lot of times the voters required it to do one thing or another. The biggest is K through 12 schools, uh, along with community colleges, but also reserves, the rainy day fund. Those things are obligated. They have to be spent on those things. And so those committed funds are about $38 billion uh, right now. And, and then there's an additional $38 billion that is discretionary, and the governor and the legislature can decide how to spend that. And what Newsom did is he included that money already obligated by law to the other half to come up with the $76 billion. He's not wrong. It's just a little bit misleading. And the LAO is saying, well, we never include that money in the surplus. So really what they're disagreeing about is how much of that windfall of revenue is really surplus. And I know you talked to both the LAO and the governor's Department of Finance. What did they say about this dramatic difference between the numbers? Yeah, well, they kind of downplayed it a bit. I talked to Ann Hollingshead uh, in the LAO's office. She's their principal fiscal analyst. And she said, first of all, you need to understand one thing. The term surplus does not have, you know, kind of a legal or even formal budgetary definition. So this is just an informal word that you know, we use to describe the condition of the budget. So right away, a little bit squishy. Uh, and the word surplus is really just a way to characterize the status of the budget. Uh, the total amount of revenue, there's really not that much disagreement, uh, which is something that H.D. Palmer, the spokesman for the Department of Finance, said. If you're looking at the $38 billion figure that the legislative analyst indicated was the non-school, uh, non-reserve amount of money, 
and compare it to the governor's budget, they said after excluding those amounts, our surplus estimates are nearly the same. So they're really going out of their way to say, eh, this is really much to do about nothing. His rationale for including the extra billions obligated to schools is that the Constitution says how much to spend, but not how to spend it. So it really is discretionary. So here we are in the middle of a recall campaign. And no matter how you slice it, California has a very large surplus. So how is Governor Newsom and his many opponents on the Republican side, how are they using the size of this surplus in their campaigns? Yeah, well, when the lower LAO number came out, a reporter for a national news outlet tweeted that the governor had, quote, miscalculated the surplus and mistakenly doubled it. Well, that was wrong. And she later apologized, took down the tweet, but it went viral. And so you started seeing words like lie and deceived, referring to Newsom. Kevin Faulkner, the Republican who's running for governor, accused Newsom of using smoke and mirrors, you know, to come up with his numbers. We just can't trust him, he said. And Newsom, of course, is touting this larger number, the $76 billion. He held a whole series of news conferences. He's doing ads, cutting it, talking about the tax rebates, uh, rent forgiveness for renters, uh, and all these positive things. But, uh, you know, the GOP is saying, look, Newsom is trying to buy votes with all these programs he's proposing. And Faulkner says that, you know, this just shows the taxes are too high and he's calling for eliminating income tax uh, for middle income earners. All right, Scott Schaefer, KQED's politics editor. Thank you. You're welcome. Turning to tech, Amazon has announced it's extending a global ban on police use of its facial recognition technology product until further notice. KQED's Rachel Myro has more. Amazon announced a one-year moratorium on recognition during nationwide racial justice protests last June. Facial recognition tech is notorious for racial bias baked into the code. IBM and Microsoft have taken similar positions, but that's three companies among hundreds in the Bay Area and beyond. Attorney Matt Cagle is with the ACLU of Northern California. Now Congress needs to act. Now the California legislature needs to act to make sure that This kind of policy is in place for all companies, not just an Amazon or not just an IBM. San Francisco, Oakland, and Berkeley have banned the technology to the extent they can, which is to say in a limited piecemeal fashion. For the California Report, I'm Rachel Myro. And that is the California Report for this Thursday, May 20th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thanks for listening. Support for the California Report comes from Blue Shield of California, closing the health care gap since 1939. Learn more about their commitment to quality and fair health care for every Californian at news.blueshieldca.com. Hint, fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid. And I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just 
what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.